Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. I am your host, Sakar Kavle. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Brian Bradley with uh, Bradley Legal uh, Group. Uh, thanks for taking time, uh, Brian. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Sakar, for having me on and putting the podcast together. And you know, it really is a big topic, but it's going to be necessary for everybody investing um, in your high-profile, high-risk uh, you know, listeners, and I hope that these key concepts and the roadmaps we go over, you know, really help them out. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your expertise today. So, uh, Brian, uh, as you are an expert in asset protection, give us some background in terms of, uh, you know, how you uh, got started and how you came about uh, into, uh, into, you know, such a big force into asset protection. And now you have so many high net worth clients that you advise uh, and act as, a, as their advisor of sorts. So give us some background, please. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, I'm an asset protection attorney and I got into asset protection from the litigation side of law, you know, I'm going to court and representing clients and having, you know, my clients being sued and their lives just turned completely upside down uh, with not much that they can do or were able to do about it. Having false sense of securities that their insurance providers were going to be there to cover everything or that they had a revocable living trust and they found out that, you know, revocable living trust isn't there to protect them. It's just there for, you know, avoiding probate when they die and mm-hmm. identifying who gets what. Um, so there's no real protection teeth in the, into it. Um, and I just got disgusted by, you know, all of this and wanted to help clients before they were attacked and before they needed um, asset protection. And the sad thing is, is just that the legal system, you know, from practicing it is broken and it's not about justice any longer. You know, mm-hmm. the American mm-hmm. Bar Association estimates that there's more than 40 million lawsuits that are filed you know, every wow. year in the U.S. Yeah. And real estate law is the most heavily litigated area of law. And the legal system has become more of a redistribution of wealth system that's encouraging plaintiffs who risk nothing to sue anyone um, to try to get a payday. And so it's a sad thing that the civil litigation has become a billion dollar business and in industry and hardworking individuals who are saving and investing are the prey. You know, we're simply just a sue happy nirvana. And so what I do is provide peace of mind for clients and, you know, while keeping in mind our overall goal really for asset protection is lifestyle preservation and changing Mm -hmm. the way predators view you. Um, And more importantly, how collectible you are, you know, you can't stop yourself from being sued, but you do have control over how collectible you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what my firm specifically does is work with the higher net worth clients and the high risk professionals like doctors and real estate investors who hit that 1 million net worth mark and though that level will come with a higher initial startup cost, generally, generally around $29,000. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, their profile and their needs, their exposure and their risk and visibility, visibility are a lot more. 
Sure. So mm -hmm. in our network, we protected collectively up to over um, $4 billion worth of assets in the systems that we've created. Wow. Wow. And I can uh, personally relate uh, there, Brian, that I have seen, um, you know, obviously multiple of such cases. And more importantly, there is this practice of, uh, you know, advertising for looking for malpractice or looking for any type of accident that may have uh, created or perhaps, you know, just looking for a negligence of sorts and things like that. So there's this whole web of things that are out there. I mean, here in Maryland, where I am based and I've been doing real estate for 20 years and I can pretty much relate to like how much time and effort we take in terms of uh, we have a unique situation here uh, of, uh, from a lead paint situation that uh, we have to get our properties not only just safe from a lead paint we have to get them lead free which is basically the gold standard that there's no lead paint exists because um, we have seen plenty of uh, case law before as well where a late paint lawsuit in a real estate portfolio can be very expensive to defend and more importantly if you lose i mean how much uh, things can be wiped out i'm sure you've seen some of those cases as well oh no i have and it goes to really just what's changed over the last 30 and 40 years you know like sure. the litigation landscapes just completely changed and Things that I think it's because things that didn't happen in the past or weren't allowed to happen in the past, like mm -hmm. contingency fee lawyers or right. law firm advertising is commonplace now. Sure. And this mm -hmm. created a, a law firms that are just purely sales and profit driven versus a justice driven legal system. And it just no longer is about justice, but just profits and hiring, um, you know, all the sales and marketing tactics that they have just to, um, you know, be profitable. And so asset protection has become the modern best bet and attempt to level the playing field. And by using all the different legal tools that we'll go over at different stops along the road, um, that's what helps level your playing field and makes it very hard for creditors to collect on you. This then puts you in a lot stronger position at the negotiating table and gives you the stronger leverage to settle or force claims um, or to have them completely go away, especially if you're getting into higher levels of asset protection, like asset protection trusts. Sure, sure. So let's let's go in there. For starters, uh, Brian, uh, help us explain and kind of uh, break it down, uh, like what it means uh, to protect your asset or asset protection, the term, right? And, and go into, yeah. uh, let's say, uh, what it looks like for a simple person versus a high net person versus a, a very ultra high net worth person. Great. We'll do. It's a great question. Um, so, and it's really misunderstood, you know, the term asset protection sure. and partly because most people just have never heard it before. They watch movies and, you know, they hear about Panama papers or other scams on TV and they just mm -hmm. lump everything together. Right. But mm -hmm. asset protection isn't traditional estate planning. It's modern estate planning. And the term itself became known in the 1980s um, with asset protection trust coming about. And then recently it became more of a standalone term and specifically in its own specific area of law. Even the ABA um, now recognizes asset protection as its own subset of estate planning. And we teach courses on asset protection. You learn about it um, and take CLE, continuing legal education courses on it. Mm -hmm. um, and what we're doing with asset protection is placing a legal barrier between your assets and your potential creditors. That's it. Mm -hmm. Like a barrier, like a safe for your gold or your guns. 
anything of value you want to put behind the barrier so that it's not easily attached or uh, with a lien or reached or attacked with lawsuits. And as long as it's done proactively, which means before you're being sued, the courts mm -hmm. don't have an issue with it. You know, they actually encourage you to be proactive and take steps to proactively planning. Mm -hmm. What courts don't want is you come committing fraud or avoiding taxes or being secretive and hiding assets. That's when you start seeing people get in trouble. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the roadmap here is going to have different stops along the way, depending sure. on where you are and what your profile looks like and what your assets are. Mm -hmm. um, but the entry level point for asset protection is going to be have insurance and, and an LLC. You know, like that's your basic entry set up. And a, sure. an mm -hmm. LLC is a good entry point to establish some basic level of protection. Mm -hmm. um, once you've maxed out your state and federal exemptions like homestead exemptions for certain states and your ERISA defined benefits, you know, like mm -hmm. 401ks. What you're starting to do now with LLCs is protect those non-exempt assets. Um, you're getting those assets out of your personal name and starting to create a moat around your castle. And sure. so mm -hmm. everybody's heard of LLCs, so I don't think we really need to like jump into like what specifically is an LLC. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I do think what is important to understand and the big issue um, is the battle between legal and proactive authority, especially when it comes to LLCs for real estate investors. And this mm -hmm. is why we start using higher levels of asset protection. Um, once you hit around a $500,000 mark, net worth well, mark. What do you mean by the battle between the legal uh, uh, protection and the uh, priority that you just uh, said? Yeah, Brian? yeah. Um, so legal versus practical authority. It's the mm. reality is that a judge can and does do whatever a judge wants. Absolutely. So L mm -hmm. LLCs and limited partnerships, you know, LPs, they're governed by the state statutes where they're created in. And when True. you get sued, you know, you're not going to be able to transfer tort or damage loss from one state to another. So sure. if, mm -hmm. if you get injured and have a property in, for example, like Wyoming and you live in California, you're not going to be able to transfer those laws. Or if you live in California, sure. you have a Wyoming LLC, just because that California property is held in the Wyoming LLC, you're going to be getting sued through the state damage and tort laws where the injury happened in California. They don't transfer laws like that. So I think that's a big misconception that people have. Interesting. So you're saying uh, there, Brian, just to correct is if you own a property, it doesn't matter where you, your LLC is based out of, right? So like, for example, in syndication world, people are constantly using, let's say the Wyoming LLC or the Texas or the Florida for all, all different uh, reasons, right? So you're saying basically that, let's say if someone has an asset in whichever state, that's where the rules will start. It doesn't matter where your LLC is formed or organized. Correct. It's called the situs. It's called the situs, and that's the, it, the injury, the jurisdiction, and then those state laws wherever the lawsuit and injury occur are going to apply. Business business laws, like if you and I, for example, own an LLC together for a business venture, sure, and we live in Nevada, and we created a Wyoming, you know, LLC. Right. Mm -hmm. In business disputes, we can use the Wyoming business um, statutes that were there because it's a business dispute. Right, internal, right. It's an internal dispute. But when you I go see. outside an external dispute and it's mm -hmm. an injury case, mm -hmm. the laws and the injury laws and the tort laws and the damage laws are going to come from where the, the state that the injury happened to and the assets at. Good, good. Thank you for clarifying yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And then 
And, and if, I may, if I may, yeah. Brian, uh, on the topic of LNCs that you said, uh, although you're absolutely right, there is, uh, you know, preliminary definition, everybody knows lots of things around LNCs and stuff. Uh, where I want to maybe perhaps have you comment uh, your expertise is that uh, the in a, a case or in a, a lawsuit, right, this, this whole corporate wheel or, you know, like you break the wheel of uh, the LLC. And I have heard comments where, there are certain best practices about how you form the LLC, meaning the membership and you know how different members you can uh, contribute so that there's no direct path to one person or two person's assets. Like, you know, like a weak example would be a husband and wife, uh, you know, owning the LLC. Well, in that case, for example, it would be one and the same thing, right? But let's say if you involve a, some unrelated member, like a, let's say brother-in-law or some other uh, folks. Uh, could you maybe give us some thoughts on, you know, what, what do you think about that? Yeah. So um, I think part, I think of what you're asking is um, single member versus multiple member ownership of LLCs and then some charging order. You right. Know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and piercing the corporate veil. And so Correct. when you're creating an LLC, um, it's a great entry point, like I said. And it's because it's in its name, limited liability. Okay, you also have to understand that it's in its name, limited. Like there's only right. so much protection right. that you can have. And then whether you own an LLC as a single member or a, or a, or a multi-member LLC, um, generally, if you're going to own real estate, we recommend that you own a single member LLC to mm -hmm. own the asset in. Um, and then what you're really looking at is charging orders. And that's where people are jumping around for you know, different jurisdictions like Wyoming, Arizona, Nevada, Texas. Um, what charging orders means is that depending on the state and the jurisdiction, you can either have really strong charging orders or horrible ones. And what mm -hmm. is important to is how much a creditor can actually collect from you, the owner of the LLC. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So good state charging orders have the charging order being the sole remedy. That's it. You know, like you're not going to be able to go outside that LLC. Um, basically a creditor with a judgment against you or the LLC or the member of it mm -hmm. is entitled only to that limited remedy of the charging order. I see. Um, mm -hmm. The problem is when we get into called practical authority, what mm -hmm. practical authority refers to is the power of a judge and what they actually have and the, the power they have to make decisions. A judge has a superpower called the court of equity. And so mm -hmm. that means a judge has very broad powers to reaching your assets, including seizing them, placing a lien on them, foreclosing on them, ordering a sheriff sale, clearing title, um, wage garnishment is almost endless. And I know that's what I, I started to think that, I mean, a judge has pretty much unlimited power in terms of what all different stipulations they can uh, place, you know? Exactly. And the, and the problem is they do this even without legal authority to do these things. They do that by exercising their superpower called um, the court of equity because mm -hmm. their whole job is to find an equitable resolution. Sure. And they do mm -hmm. this even in direct contradiction to established statutes and case law. You see mm -hmm. it all the time. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. So the result is that that court's practical authority just took your asset even with no legal authority. Right. And so the solution is to hinder a judge's practical authority over your assets so that they can't circumvent the legal process. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can see charging order shopping is only so strong. And especially in the US system mm -hmm. where we have the mm -hmm. full faith and credit clause of the constitution, anything purely domestic, you can't ever avoid the constitution, the full faith and credit clause. Mm -hmm. And you can't ever avoid a judge's 
um, superpower um, authority. And so what we need to do is try to level the playing field. And that's what stronger asset protection systems do, um, like using asset management partnerships and then bringing in the big guns um, asset protection trust. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we bring in the asset protection trust generally around when you hit that 1 million net worth mark. Interesting. Can you, can you maybe explain us uh, about, you know, the asset uh, protection trust and also the uh, asset part that you just said, uh, Brian, there? Yeah. So, um, let's say you become somewhat successful. You start out with your LLC, you have about two or four of those, probably like five units. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have maybe a couple LLCs at that point. It's starting to get hard to manage. Sure. And so mm-hmm. The next level up is you create an um, asset protection management limited partnership. Mm-hmm. What it is, it's just a management company that mm-hmm. owns those LLCs and those LLCs own the real estate. And right. so what this does is it makes your CPA not hate you because you now have only one tax filing because all those K1s go through that limited partnership, that management company. And so mm-hmm. it makes it easier to manage. Mm-hmm. And now it's creating a second layer of protection because you're managing through that management company. Sure. Um, all your receivables go through there. Um, that's going to be your name. That's going to be the branding. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to your third tier, your out your outer layer. There's really cold outside. It's winter storm. You know we have over a million dollars worth of net worth or more. Um, you used an asset protection trust. I see. So going back to the prior example that you said there, Brian, that you have an operating LLC and you have uh, assets in in some other LLCs, right? So let's imagine a dark scenario that. Uh, you had a lawsuit and obviously it comes through, let's say your operating entity, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. What is it uh, that prevents the judge to say that, Hey, listen, you know, this operating entity is truly just a uh, shell. I'm going to go after the actual, uh, you know, assets uh, that are owned in that LLC. Uh, Could could you maybe shed some light on that? Yeah. Great question. At that point, nothing because it's just going to be as strong as an LLC. Right. What you're doing is trying to create a second separation layer of your asset with the LLC into a management company. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, there's not going to be any additional protection from the LLC. Mm-hmm. What it is is scaling you up to where when if you're already are becoming a successful investor, for us to add the asset um, protection trust onto it. So the management company is going to be a limited partnership. Mm-hmm. All right. Those have two separate ownership classes, a general partnership owner and a minority partnership share owner. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. the LLCs and real estate are going to be owned by the general partnership and you're just going to be named the general managing partner. So you're just managing the business. And the I thing. see. Uh-huh. The ownership share of that management company is the minority portion of the limited partnership. Mm-hmm. That is going to be owned by your asset protection trust or your bridge trust that we like to use for, you know, higher net worth clients. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the ownership share of it. And that's your really strong um, asset protection because it's both a domestic asset protection trust and it's a foreign asset protection trust all in one. Mm-hmm. And it, you want that foreign component because the strength of the jurisdiction of being offshore, because nothing domestic, you can't say, sorry, we're not going to recognize your court order or your judgment. But if you add an offshore component like the Cook Islands, the Cook Islands have what's called statutory non-recognition. They're going to say, sorry, we don't recognize any countries or states or other governments, court orders or or, um, damages. You have to sue us. You you have to start the lawsuit here in the Cook Islands. And so that's why when you look 
for strong asset protection and jurisdiction is so important. I see. So you're saying basically that not only you should have a domestic component, you definitely add a foreign component wherein it's almost impossible to like consume the whole pie, so to speak, right? Correct. And, and that's... No, uh, go for it. Sorry. No, I was just going to ask that between the operating LLC and the ownership LLC, as I like to call it, is there any other barrier we can, uh, or any other gate we can put in, in between them that prevents uh, sort of jumping the fence of sorts uh, for a judge? At that point, if you have that whole setup with the LLCs having, owning the real estate, then the asset management limited partnership owning the LLCs, and you come in with a bridge trust, which is also a foreign asset protection trust, mm -hmm. that is one of the strongest systems that you could create. Um, you don't really need much more after that because what happens when you have that foreign component is, even in the worst case scenario, let's say you have a $10 million judgment, an actual judgment against you, mm -hmm. they have to go to the offshore you know, trustee in the Cook Islands and say, hey, I have this judgment. At that yeah. point, that offshore trustee is going to say, well, sorry, we don't care because we don't recognize other countries' court orders. You're going to have to start the lawsuit here from scratch within one year statute of limitations, prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, pay all the upfront court costs, fly in a judge from New Zealand, um, and if you lose, you pay. It's the ultimate barrier, and it's been around for over 40 years, and that's still the gold standard. Um, and so with that strong of an asset protection system, even if you get a U.S. judgment against you, once mm -hmm. the assets are triggered and we drop the domestic compliance and we're purely a foreign Cook Island asset protection trust, it forces even that judgment holder to come back to the negotiating table and settle that case for pennies on the dollar because they realize they're never going to get a penny otherwise. Sure, sure, so sure. So you in the position of strength and leverage, even against a judgment on you. Um, and so when you're being sued, when we decide to trigger, you know, trigger that clause, the migration clause to drop domestic compliance and be purely classified foreign is just a strategy during, you know, during trial. I see. Now, um, Brian, help us explain the role of insurance in all of this, right? So you have your primary insurance, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, one can argue that, uh, hey, why am I going into a complicated setup? Why, why can't I go into adding like an umbrella insurance or something into this, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, help us now uh, sort of break it down into pros and cons of why would you do uh, or why would you not do the uh, sort of the uh, umbrella insurance uh, route, as I call it? Yeah, no problem. It's a great question. And it's a good, you know, one that's commonly misunderstood. And this mm -hmm. is definitely a hot topic. And insurance, like I said, is always a great place to start. Sure. Have insurance, have as much coverage as you can have. Um, it helps for small claims, but if there's a big claim, a building burnt down and someone died, or your business is being sued for tens of millions of dollars, your insurance job is not to sit there and cover you. It's there to create legal wiggle room to not cover that large claim. Their job is to collect premiums and not pay large claims. Sure, um, sure, sure. And, yeah. and that's where I kind of sometimes think that that's where your umbrella should also probably tri uh, trigger in, right? And, and again, uh, as you described, right, if it's a 
large building lots with multiple losses and stuff. So I don't know. I mean, but that, that would be pretty disastrous that if you have multiple lives being lost, I mean, you know, like let's say if you had an apartment building catch fire, th this can unfortunately happen. I mean, we, we really don't want those things to happen. But hey, in practical life, let's say that happens. Uh, I would be interested to know your thoughts that how far the umbrella insurance can go. And that's where I think your asset management trust, as you said, would probably come in. But I, that's I would love the to get. Data. Yeah. And right. the issue with insurance is this is they don't cover you for fraud or intentional wrongdoings or intentional sure. acts. Right. And so the simple part of it is this the way insurance defense works is that. It, a simple statement as an email that I sent during, you know, before a lawsuit, even mm -hmm. the plumbing is, is all done. It's all perfect. That's a statement. What a judge will say is, well, you sent an email that was an intentional act. And now your insurance provider is going to say like, oh, well now this case may be all based off of intentional wrongdoing and intentional acts. Even an umbrella policy, we don't cover you for intentional wrongdoings or intentional acts. Sure. And if you think we're wrong, go ahead and sue us also. But we're now that the judge deemed this potentially an intentional act, we're not going to cover you. And sure. that's how insurance defense and in the insurance business itself works. Mm -hmm. So you need to, you know, your listeners need to understand insurance is great. Habit is good for the little things, but it's not going to cover you. And they're going to create legal wiggle room um, to not cover that. And insurance realistically only provides capital for lawsuits in litigation. Generally, all that's eaten up in large lawsuits through the lawsuit. Now, if you have an over coverage claim amount, let's say you're only covered for 1 million and the damages is 5 million, you're going to still have to protect yourself to, for that 4 million left over. Right, right, right. Now, in your solution that you said uh, there, Brian, the asset management trust and the, um, I, let's say the domestic component and the international component that you described, uh, give us some sort of uh, what's involved in structuring the, like the paperwork, uh, who, I mean, are there any resident agents uh, uh, that, that need to be involved or can they be still US-based agent, uh, give us some framework on what sort of details are needed to establish this uh, framework. Yeah, and so the bridge trust that we use is gonna be held in compliance with um, the IRS codes, um, especially, so all asset protection trusts, let me start it like this, are called self-settled spendthrift trusts, whether they're domestic or foreign, and it means that they're created by you for yourself as your own beneficiary. Mm -hmm. And then, a bridge trust is just combining the best of both worlds. It's combining a domestic component so that it's cheaper on maintenance. It's, it's cheaper while it's purely domestic. You don't have to do all the IRS foreign disclosures. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot easier to maintain. And then this is all through compliance with USC section 7701, which is the court test and the control test. And I so, see. yeah. And so I wouldn't recommend anybody setting these up on their own because they're going to completely mess this up. Like you have to go, <laughs> Yeah. So you need to have a, a, a lawyer, an asset protection attorney who's familiar with both domestic and foreign asset protection trust. You're going to have, you know, for example, an offshore foreign trustee. Um, you're going to have a trust protector looking over the foreign trustee. Um, you're going to be the named trustee while you're purely domestic. Um, you don't need to set up an offshore, you know, like Swiss bank account at that point in time because it's not needed. You don't need sure. to spend mm -hmm. on that. Um, what happens is if you get sued and we deem it's necessary to trigger the bridge and cross over from domestic 
to the foreign mm -hmm. component of it mm -hmm. is that IRS compliance of section 7701 is just dropped. We no longer name you as the trustee. Your backup offshore trustee is now the main trustee. And you want that to happen because you don't want to have a U.S. court say, well, I know you own assets here domestically and we want you to bring them back and we're going to hold you in civil contempt until you do. With the power of having the trustee take over, the offshore trustee take over and removing you as the sole controller is, you don't have control to do that anymore. And that offshore trustee mm -hmm. is going to say, well, hey, this is under duress. Our job is to protect the assets. So no, we're not going to comply. Even if you, the, you know, the settler of the trust say, hey, can you please comply with that and transfer the assets back? And this is established through case law. Um, they're just going to say no because it's duress and we're not going to adhere to that. We're protecting the assets. And now a judge won't be able to hold you in civil contempt and force those assets back. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, and then they ask, you know, the lawsuit settles, it goes away. Um, once it goes away, we reinstill the IRS compliance and now it's back to being purely a domestic classified trust. And so that's how the, the inner workings and, and tactics of it work. Right. So now, Brian, I want to shift attention to like uh, something that practically happens day in, day out. Like, you know, I'm addressing the real estate investors here. Um, they're doing a lot of deals and, you know, like establishing a lot of LLCs, a lot of entities get established from deals to deals and things like that, right? So uh, in your asset protection and the, or the bridge trust, as you said, um, does it need to be like, entity specific meaning like let's say a uh, lot of like uh, multifamily operators are establishing as i said you know uh, sort of apartment specific entities right so is there any umbrella structure that can cover a lot of these things uh, or unfortunately if the answer is no what, what what sort of tactics you have played when someone has a lot of uh, entities uh, underneath them so that's we, we clean these up with the management company because sometimes entities can be combined or disregarded because they may not be needed. Mm -hmm. um, that's what the management company is for. Mm -hmm. And it just makes it a smoother business for them to run. Mm -hmm. And then um, the asset protection trust is going to be, it's a grantor trust, an irrevocable tax neutral grantor trust. And because it's a grantor trust, mm -hmm. it doesn't hinder anybody's ability to continue investing how they want. Um, so you can keep investing, however, running your business, however you want. Um, it's tax neutral because we're not, you know, again, you know, asset protection is not about avoiding taxes. You're going to be paying your taxes on it. Mm -hmm. um, but as you're adding all these LLCs and different, different business entities and investments, you want a more streamlined process to manage it. That's the management um, limited partnership. Sure, sure. So that would be addressed just right at the management entity level that, Correct. you know, those are kind of the sub be there for the management LLC. Correct. And then the bridge trust, you know, which is the domestic and foreign trust is your big shark protection system. Like you really don't need um, anything above that because you have in your back pocket, the foreign Cook Island option, if you ever needed to trigger it. Mm -hmm. um, generally, I hope, you know, you don't like we've had to trigger over a hundred of them. Um, and they all work, you know, it works out perfectly fine and makes this cases just go away or settle for pennies on the dollar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, you have it in the back pocket if and when you ever need it. I um, see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some no. people might want to create a second LLC, you know, like you have your management company and mm -hmm. the bridge trust above it. Some clients may want to create, for example, like a Wyoming um, LLC as a buffer between the management company 
Um, mm -hmm. But generally that's just overkill and it's not needed because you remember whatever you set up, you want the optics to look good. Because if you are in court in front of a judge or a jury, you don't want the optics to look bad because then you are going to make people angry, whether the system's strong or not. So you just always right. want to look through whatever you create, make sure the optics look good. Just like that's why you use LLCs in the states where you own the assets in, mm -hmm. better optics. I see. Um, yeah. Now, Brian, here, uh, are there any tax deferment benefits or any of that sort uh, in the British Trust or it's it's more for classification of uh, assets and protecting them? It's, yeah, great question. Its main focus is purely protection. Anything uh -huh. that you set up for asset protection needs to be in this tax neutral just to protect and preventative planning. That doesn't mean you can't get tax benefits because, for example, if you own something in your name and you mm -hmm. take it out of your name and you put it into a business entity, the IRS now views your facts differently. So you're going to be taxed differently. And generally, then you're going to be get the benefits of different tax write-offs that your CPA will be able to utilize and cost segregation studies and you'll be able to get more money in your back pocket. Sure. That's secondary. So we don't right. plan around that. We plan for the protection part of it. Mm -hmm. And then you work, we work with your CPA on the secondary tax benefits of it. Um, our viewpoint of it is this isn't for tax avoidance. Otherwise, sure. it's yeah. Right, right. Now, uh, uh, going back to the British tr uh, Trust there, the uh, foreign component that we add, are there any annual continuing requirements to maintain that uh, there? While it's domestic, it's about $2,100 a year maintenance, and that's for the management company and the Bridge Trust. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about, a, you know, that's our cost, and that's about generally across the board. If you ever had to trigger it and drop it, and be a purely foreign asset protection trust, then you're going to go into a higher maintenance cost, generally around five to ten thousand dollars, while you're purely foreign, and you're going to have to um, comply with the IRS foreign tax filings and disclosures. Um, and then when the case settles, once the domestic components are added back in place, you know you're going to go back down to the lower maintenance cost fees, and then you don't have those extra IRS um, foreign tax filings. I see. So now, uh, Brian, what sort of costs are involved in setting up the Bridge Trust and, 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 you know, what sort of paperwork and how much time it takes to set this up? Yeah, generally, most, you know, like our firm, you know, I don't know what every firm does, but I, across the board of most firms will work like this and I'll just do it through what our firm does. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. They're going to just give you a flat rate. You know, mm -hmm. and we do it because we don't want people to have to worry about extra hourly costs. So for the management company and the bridge trust, it's twenty nine thousand dollars, seven six thousand for the management company, and then twenty three thousand for the bridge trust. Um, we do all the legal documents for you. We help you to transfer everything over. All of this is done within about thirty days. Um, we're very efficient at it, and you're not lawyers. We don't want you to be doing it and messing it up. Sure. So you just work with the legal department and we do everything for you. Um, most firms will do that. Also, I would be hesitant if they weren't to work with you and just say, here's a blanket empty trust. Um, good luck managing it on your own and transferring everything into it without knowing how to do it. I know. I know. I, you're, you're just going to mess up a very strong system and you're not getting what you pay for. Right, right, right. And also now, Brian, um, speaking of the trust structure, what sort of success you have seen uh, in like 
in like let's say the past cases or what sort of like uh, uh, different cases that you have seen and just because of having this trust uh, the client really saved uh, some significant amount uh, as oh, a result absolutely, absolutely yeah um so again because the bridge trust is a foreign asset protection trust you're going to have 40 years of all the case law from the cook islands and foreign entities foreign asset protection trust there at your, mm. your strength and disposal and that's 40 years of actually very strong supportive case law. That's why it's the gold standard across the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so just to share some of the, you know, like you said, the success, success stories, um, there's this, the famous Anderson case with the SEC coming after, you know, $36 million. Um, and this case settled for pennies on the dollar. And I don't condone this behavior, but just I like to teach through extreme bad cases. The Andersons were crooks. Like they created a Ponzi scheme. They stiffed. 36, $36 million into this trust. Wow. And the, the $36 million was safe, even from the government, the man who has infinite amount of resources and can come and sue you in the Cook Islands. They forced the government to settle for pennies on the dollar. And you have the same thing with the Grant case, crooks, you know, the, stiffing the IRS for money, same thing. Um, and then some other ones, there's a $34 million malpractice suit that settled for a $1 million, under $1 million, actually. Wow. Um, a five, yeah, a $5 million judgment that settled for $200,000. Um, we had a $75 million personal loan suit that settled for $5 million with payment over, you know, spaced out over, I forget how many years. A $32 million bank loan dispute that settled for $2.5 million. Wow. Um, we mm -hmm. had a doctor who had $1 million worth of malpractice insurance and got sued for malpractice and had a $3 million judgment that ended up being completely dispersed and went away. Wow. Wow. And now, uh, speaking of this, tr uh, trust, uh, there, Brian, um, what sort of, uh, net worth is needed, uh, or you advise people, uh, I mean, you know, sometimes like nowadays five, 10 million is, it's really not much in my opinion, you know, like you really want a really high net worth to, uh, you, you know, sort of sustain and support the annual costs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Give us some guidance uh, in terms of, you know, like dollar numbers, if you can. Of when, like what different levels people should think about. Right, okay. right. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when you're just starting out, you know, I don't even care if you're just starting out a residency and you want to invest or you're just like, hey, I'm a nurse or a cop firefighter and I'm going to go invest in a couple of doors. Start with an LLC and insurance. That's your starting point. It's going to be sure. affordable. Mm -hmm. Like you're not, don't pay for the Taj Mahal until you need the Taj Mahal. Right, right. Um, once you get to four units or like 250, you know, thousand net worth, um, that's when you need to start at that point, you have a couple LLCs. You need to start sure. thinking about your tax filings and streamlining and where you're going to grow from there. Mm -hmm. That's when you bring in the management company, create the system before you need it to where you're going and then make your CPA happy and get your, your business set up properly. Sure. When mm -hmm. you hit that 500, you think it's going to be a little low. When you hit that 500,000 net worth mark to a million is when we actually start talking and, and having clients, um, bring in the foreign component, the bridge trust. Um, and, that, and that's mm -hmm. simply because that's a lot of money for most people to make. And mm -hmm. one lawsuit will can completely wipe that out. Sure. And they're not going to be able to rebuild that. And so generally most people want to protect that retirement nest egg. Sure. Um, and so that's where our, we see like the, 
highest profile is around 500 to 1.2 million. I Generally, see. when you're getting to five or 10 million, half the clients already have some sort of structure on this and we just have to clean it up and then bring in a bridge trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. It's, it's you know, I, th- those clients understand the need for it. Right. Mm-hmm. The biggest damage I see done is between 1.2 million and 5 million. Right. And that's just something I think because most of that, those clients are used to doing everything themselves and they built themselves up from scratch. Sure. And they want, they think that they can create legal systems on their own and manage them on their own. Right. right. And they're not past that mental mindset of utilize your team. So sure. I would say utilize your team, realize what level you're at and then scale as you need to go. So realize you may be just at LLC level, but then two years from now, you might need that management company. And then depending how good of an investor you are and how successful you are, that 250 or 500,000 can go to 1 million really fast. And then that 1 million, you're going to now be most likely an accredited investor getting Mm -hmm. deals no one else is getting. And then that 1 million to 5 million, it grows very fast. So that's when you need to be preventative and plan beforehand and get that asset protection trust in so that you can realize I can sleep well at night knowing I have the system in place if things go belly up. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure knowing you. Uh, Tell our listeners like where they can learn more information about you, your contact information, and maybe perhaps learn more about the bridge trust you're talking about as well. Yeah, they can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. And I have lots of educational videos and brochures and pamphlets and lots of frequently asked questions on that you know, we weren't able to have time to touch upon here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, they can email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at btblegal.com. I like answering questions. I used to do paid consultations, but I just do free consultations now um, because I think most people are afraid to talk to a lawyer and especially if they're shopping around and wanting to hear other opinions, they don't want to pay multiple consultation fees. Sure, sure. I would rather have people just get the information, make an educated decision, get an evaluation. What you do from it from there you know, I just want you to be educated. Right. Awesome. It's been a pleasure, uh, Brian. I appreciate all the expertise you shared today. Uh, I'm hoping that we can again touch base on a, uh, you know, some in-depth topic around this and, uh, you know, host you on another future episode of it. I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.